God's kingdom looks in a bad way. That was the case 3,000 years ago when the events of 2 Samuel took place. And it often looks that way in our own day too. God's kingdom often looks in a bad way. And yet in it all, God is in control. He is working out his plans and purposes, not just in spite of those trying to bring down his kingdom, but even through them. Uh, That is the encouragement that God wants to give us as we look at this part of his word tonight. All those out there opposing God, opposing his rule, God will work not simply in, in spite of them, but God will, will even work through them. Even uh, as unwilling as they are that that would happen. And so we're going to look at this chapter and a bit this evening under two headings. Uh, firstly, saying things look bleak, uh, but God has a plan. Things look bleak, but God has a plan. Last week we saw the call to be committed to God's king when his cause seems weak. God's king in 2 Samuel being David, uh, who in turn points us forward to the Lord Jesus. Uh, The cause of God's king and his kingdom really does seem weak here. David has been driven out of Jerusalem. His son Absalom has claimed the throne And it seems that most people have simply transferred their loyalty to Absalom. Even Ahithophel, David's trusted counsellor, a part of his inner circle, has gone over to the enemy. We've already heard about Ahithophel's betrayal back in chapter 15 when David was told about it. And then we're told at the very end of chapter 16 that in those words... In those days, the counsel of Ahithophel was as if one consulted the word of God. And so was the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. So this is a major, major blow. And it wasn't simply a case of Ahithophel changing employer. I was phoning up about the, the car during the week uh, just to, to see what's happening and I was, I was told that the person I'd been speaking to previously didn't work there anymore. And I wasn't told why, maybe he got a new job somewhere, which is a perfectly legitimate thing to do. But for a hit of full, David isn't just one potential employer out of many. He is God's chosen king. For Ahithophel to swap David for Absalom was to rebel against God. Now, this is a, a serious thing. Ahithophel is moving to where he thinks the wind is blowing. But as we'll see by the end of tonight, it, it was a massive miscalculation. As it is for any today who, who walk away from Jesus out of a desire to be on the right side of history. Because they will find themselves on the wrong side. So Ahithophel's betrayal, his defection, it it is a massive moment. It's a huge step for him to take. And it's potentially disastrous for David. 
In the verses that we read earlier, Ahithophel gave Absalom two pieces of counsel. Absalom follows one of them, but if he'd followed both of them, uh, surely it would have been curtains for David. The first piece of advice Ahithophel gives is at the end of chapter 16. Absalom asks him what he should do, and Ahithophel says, he says, go into your father's concubines uh, to the sort of secondary wives that David had left behind. Uh, chapter 15 tells us that he left 10 of them behind. Uh, so David is God's chosen king, but he's not, a, he's not a perfect king because he has these concubines. Uh, when a new king came to power in those days, one of the symbolic things that he would have done was to take the harem, take the wives of the previous king. Now, normally that may just have been a, a symbolic thing, a, a paper transaction. But for Absalom to actually go in and have relations with these women, uh, and in a way that everyone knew what was happening, it, it was a way of burning his bridges with David. There's no going back now, no prospect of reconciliation. It's a despicable thing to do. And yet, as readers, the fact that Absalom follows Ahithophel's shocking counsel is actually quietly reassuring. Why? This would not have been reassuring for, for David's supporters in those days. It would have looked uh, like, like victory to Absalom and his followers. But why is this quietly reassuring for us? Because what had God told David through the prophet Nathan back in chapter 12? He, he told him, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Even in the midst of all this sin, God is still at work. And even in the midst of our sinful world, God is still at work. All people can do with their scheming against God is fulfill his plans. And do we see that above all at the cross? Those who put Jesus there trying to trying to stop what he was doing well they are they are guilty for what they did but all their sin manages to do is fulfill god's word and advance his plan no matter how hard the devil tries to derail god's plan all he can do is advance it in fact, in the second half of verse 3, Ahithophel urges that one man be killed in order to bring peace to the people or, or, or to bring about the return of the people. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace or, or more literally like the return of the whole is the, the man whom you seek. Uh, either way, the point is the same. Kill one man and all the people will be at peace. And that, that's what happens at the cross. Just as the Jewish high priest Caiaphas had counseled better than he knew when he said about Jesus, it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. 
Caiaphas meant that it, was be- it would be better that they give up one man and, and, and he's killed and it gets the Romans off their backs. But Jesus' death, it actually brought not uh, physical deliverance from the Romans, but spiritual salvation. The advice here is, is sacrifice one man, kill one man, and the people will go free. That's what happened at the cross. One man standing where we should have stood. This second piece of advice from Ahithophel comes in chapter 17 at the start of the chapter. He urges Absalom to gather 12,000 men and, and pursue David that very night when David is weary and discouraged. All he'll need to do is attack David and everyone else will will panic. Uh, It would have been the reverse of David and Goliath in a way when when Goliath is killed and all the Philistines flee. Here uh, they can do the same thing. They can kill David uh, and all David's men will flee. Uh, And then any resistance to Absalom's rule will be over. And in verse 4 the advice seems right to Absalom and all the elders of Israel. And that is because it was good advice, humanly speaking. If the objective is to defeat David, then that would have been the best way to do it. Don't give him a chance to regroup. Strike while the iron is hot. And yet there is a double agent in the camp. Hushai was one of those we looked at last week at the end of chapter 15. Hushai thought commitment to David looked like leaving Jerusalem, but David had told him, no, you'll be more useful to me in the city where you are. As we we thought last week, service to God looks different for different people. Uh, just because not everybody's serving God the same way doesn't mean they're not serving God. Uh, so Hushai had listened to David. He'd gone back to the city. Absalom had rightly been suspicious. He asks him, uh, chapter 16, verse 16, Is this your loyalty to your friend? In other words, well, well you're, you're not being very loyal to David, are you? In chapter 16, verse 16, Hushai greets Absalom with the words, Long live the king. Now Absalom takes this as Hushai speaking about him. But actually for Hushai, David is still king. So even though he's right in front of Absalom, when he says long live the king, he's talking about David. Even though Absalom doesn't take it that way. It's the same when Hushai says in verse 18, For whom has the Lord, uh, uh, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be and him I will remain. Again, Absalom assumes that Hushai is speaking about him, but, but who had God and all the people of Israel chosen? David. God certainly hadn't chosen Absalom. Even at the end of verse 19, when Hushai says, I will serve you, uh, it's literally, I will serve in your presence. But he doesn't, he doesn't say who it is he's going to serve. He's going to serve David in, in Absalom's presence. So Hushai never tells Absalom in so many words that he will be loyal to him or, or that he switched loyalty from David. 
without telling a lie, he manages to convince Absalom that he's on his side. And I think it's important to, to highlight that because it is always wrong to tell a lie. Whatever the circumstances, even if the Nazis are at your door asking if you have any Jews hidden in your house. If God is sovereign, we don't have to lie. Unlike Hushai, it seems that the woman in chapter 17 who hides the men in the well does lie. Uh, But as Matthew Henry said long ago, although the woman did well in concealing them, we know not how to justify her further concealing them with a lie. We must not do evil that good may come of it. Rahab in the Bible is commended for her faith, uh, but not her lie. Hushai, David's friend, remains loyal to David. And Absalom makes the catastrophic mistake of asking his advice. And Hushai's advice is bad advice for anyone wanting to kill David. It's deliberately designed to give David a chance to to get a breather and regroup. Uh, Absalom even even makes a mistake of of telling Hushai uh, what what Ahithophel has said. Uh, And so all Hushai has to do is say the opposite of it. So why does Absalom even ask Hushai for advice when when Ahithophel is a star counsellor? And then why does he take the advice when it's opposite of what Ahithophel says? Well, well two, two reasons. And the, the, the main reason, the ultimate reason, we're told at the end of verse 15, is, is that the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So the main reason that Absalom listens to this bad advice is because God is is sovereignly overruling. But from the human perspective, Hushai uses just enough cunning uh, to, to convince Absalom to go with the plan, despite its apparently obvious flaws. For a start, Hushai doesn't completely throw Ahithophel under the bus. He, he simply says, this time the counsel Ahithophel has given is not good. Because there's no point in trying to deny that Ahithophel was normally a good counsellor. Because no one would have believed him. But, but anybody can get it wrong once. And that's what, that's what Hushai is suggesting. But the real genius of Hushai's counsel is that he seems to appeal to Absalom's vanity. Uh, do you remember how we were introduced to Absalom by being told that no one in Israel was so much to be praised for his handsome appearance? Uh, we're told that he cut his hair at the end of every year and he weighed it. And you don't weigh your hair unless you, you, you want to, to try and prove something. He is a vain man. Uh, boys and girls, Absalom isn't unlike the, the evil stepmother who says, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of us all? And so the one weakness of Ahithophel's plan from the point of view of a vain king is that the plan involves Ahithophel doing things 
and Absalom not doing things. Look back at chapter 17, verse 1. Ahithophel says, let, let me choose 12,000 men. and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him when he's weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic and all the people will flee. I will strike down only the king and I will bring all the people back to you. So Ahithophel's plan involves him going and doing everything and then bringing the people back to, to Absalom who's staying at home in Jerusalem. Ahithophel knows how to get the job done. But, but Hushai knows how to stroke egos. Uh, and so his counsel in verse 11 is that Absalom goes to battle in person. How spectacular would that be? Uh, and this image of Absalom leading out all Israel like the sand on the seashore. It's just too attractive for Absalom to turn down. He can picture himself out in front of them all, everyone marching behind him. But it will be his downfall. He manages to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. All he had to do was listen to Ahithophel's advice and say yes. But the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. Because God had made promises about David and his kingdom. And he was going to keep those promises. And God has made even greater promises about Jesus and his kingdom. And he is going to keep those promises too. God has promised as he did in the days of Daniel. That that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. It shall stand forever. And so as we look out at our world with its seething sinfulness, with its rampant rejection of God, we don't need to fear. Because the Lord has ordained that there is one king who will be victorious and one kingdom which will be supreme. Often it doesn't look like God is doing very much in our day. And is it not the same in this chapter? God doesn't intervene here in a big spectacular way. All we see is a king asking two different counsellors for advice. And he takes the advice of one and not the other. There there are no lightning strikes. There's no writing on the wall. There's no voice from heaven. But, verse 14, the Lord had ordained which advice that Absalom would listen to. And if we know the end of the story, we realise that this is the turning point of the whole thing. It is a God-ordained turning point. And perhaps you too can look back at your own life and see the hidden sovereignty of God at work. In events or conversations that didn't seem all that significant at the time. But looking back now, you can see them as the turning points that they really were. And if you can, if you can look back at at points in your life where, where God has been at work directing you a certain way, bringing you into contact with certain people, well, take courage that the same God is still at work in the world and he's still at work in your life today. 
Nothing spectacular here. But just a, a quiet reminder that God is in control and everything is going to be okay. Things may look bleak, but God has a plan. Secondly, uh, our second point is a how-to point. How to be on the right side of history, uh, which so many people around us desperately want to be on. It might not seem a big decision, as we've said, for Absalom to listen to one counsellor over the other. Uh, maybe it just seems there, there, there's two ways to skin a cat. But, but as soon as he does, the writing is on the wall for his rebel kingdom. Absalom can't see it. All he can see is a vision of him leading the troops into battle. He can't see his downfall coming, but, but Ahithophel can just as the devil himself knows that he is doomed uh, and that he is going to lose, so Ahithophel knows that the cause he has staked everything on is doomed and is going to lose. That's ultimately why he goes home and takes his life. You know, I, I've read this chapter before and thought, well, Ahithophel, his identity is so built on having his advice listened to that, that he can't cope with his advice not being listened to. Uh, and it's become his, his identity to such an extent that he would rather die than have his advice ignored. But having studied it this week, I think there's more to it than that. I think Ahithophel is... is wiser than that and more calculating than that not not a godly wisdom but a but a worldly wisdom uh, and so i i think we 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 should rather think of a hitful suicide not so much as the actions of a man whose pride has been so hurt that he can't face living another day but more as like the actions of a Nazi general who sees that the war has been lost and who knows that if he lives, he'll face a trial and he'll face the death penalty. Now, Hushai, Hushai doesn't actually know whether his advice has been followed or not. That's why he, he urgently has to send a message to David to tell him not to hang around. Uh, David needs to get somewhere safe just in case Absalom goes with Ahithophel's plan instead. Uh, but it soon becomes clear to Ahithophel that his counsel isn't being followed. Uh, and Ahithophel sees that the game is up. Absalom's advantage is gone. And it will only be a matter of time before the rebellion is crushed. Ahithophel knows that the game is up. That's why he does what he does. But, but he doesn't know why. Uh, as far as Ahithophel is concerned, it's just a human miscalculation on Absalom's part. But as we've seen, verse 14 spells out the real reason. It is the sovereignty of God. As a direct result of David's sin, God had warned him that he would raise up evil against him out of his own house. And that had happened. God had told him that his wives would be given to a neighbour. And that had happened too. But God had also made an earlier promise to establish David's kingdom forever. And the time has now come to crush this rebellion. God's word of judgment had reached its fulfillment and now his word of promise takes over 
Absalom had put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and he will face the consequences. But for his end, we'll have to wait until next week. But tonight is the end of the road for Ahithophel. He sets his house in order and hangs himself. His death comes at his own hand, but God is no less sovereign over it. As someone has very powerfully put it, Ahithophel is not merely a government official who committed political folly, but an adversary of the Lord's chosen king and therefore an enemy of the Lord and his kingdom. And now they are carrying Ahithophel out to bury him. This is the man who lifted up his hand against the Lord's anointed. His end is a sign of what will happen to all the enemies of that king and kingdom. You cannot attack the kingdom of God without sooner or later being crushed by the power of God. The Ahithophels and Adolfs, the Hamans and Himmlers, the Sennacheribs and Stalins, they rot in the junkyard of history because the Lord stands guard over his kingdom. There are different parallels to Ahithophel we can draw throughout history. But surely the, the clearest one, I think the one the Bible above all wants us to think of is Judas Iscariot. Both were in the trusted inner circle of God's chosen king. Both betrayed him. Both realised that they'd made a massive miscalculation. And both went away and hanged themselves. We'd rather not think about the Ahithophels or Judases of the Bible. But imagine if we didn't have examples like this. And then we saw people who looked uh, for all the world like they were on Jesus' side turning away from him. And using their God-given gifts and abilities to work against him. We're devastated when we see it and increasingly we are seeing it. One Christian podcast last year, its most downloaded episode was entitled When Others Fall Away. Believers are, are, are facing this. Many, many, many believers are facing this. And it is devastating when others fall away. But it would be even worse if we weren't prepared for it in scripture by being shown that it's nothing new and what a warning for anyone toying with going down that track because it will only end in disaster and so it is a sobering chapter and we do need to feel the weight of it and just as last week the call comes will you commit yourself to God's chosen king even when his cause looks weak even though you can see that trouble will come down the line as a result of your choice. Well, praise God that the chapter ends with three men who did just that, who committed themselves to God's chosen king when his kingdom looked like it was hanging by a thread. In verse 27, Shubai is a former pagan. Machir was once loyal to Saul. And Barzillai is a senior citizen. But when it matters, we find them here standing beside God's chosen king. 
1847, during the Mexican-American War, there was a significant battle where 7,000 American troops were trying to take a castle being defended by 25,000 Mexicans. Uh, Lieutenant Stonewall Jackson was commanding a gun battery that came under intense fire from the castle's defenders. Some of the horses were killed and the gunners deserted the guns to find shelter behind an embankment. But Jackson remained at the guns, urging his men back. Years later, when he had become a major, some students asked him, Why didn't you run when your command was so disabled? And Jackson's quiet response was, I was not ordered to do so. If I had been ordered to run, I should have done so, but I was directed to hold my position and I had no right to abandon it. That was the situation with Shubai, Machir and Barzillai. Israel had a covenant king and they had no right to abandon him. And they didn't. And we have no right to abandon him either. And if Jesus were to ask us, as he asked the twelve disciples, do you want to go away as well? Saying it in a way that, 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 that expects the answer no. Surely our answer would be the same as that of Simon Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Uh, speaking to, to a new convert uh, just uh, a week or two ago here, and he was saying that, 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 that there was a time that, that he, that he had, had, had a bit of doubt not long after he became a believer, but this verse came back to him. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And notice just as the chapter ends how these three men, they don't do anything spectacular. But what they do is refresh those who are weary in the service of God. Many professing Christians could be divided into two categories. In the church, there can be energy suckers and energy givers. Uh, some are energy suckers. They're easily offended. You have to walk in eggshells around them. Uh, they will only serve if it's on their terms or it's something they're interested in. The, their default setting is criticism. Whereas energy givers are the encouragers, those who realize that their fellow Christians may well be weary, coming from a hard situation, and just in need of a bit of encouragement to keep them going. It might not sound that, that big of a deal, or perhaps some would even say, well, well real spiritual Christians don't need encouragement. If people were, were spiritual enough, they'd just keep going, no matter whether they got any encouragement or not. And perhaps that's true, but, but it is interesting that the Apostle Paul highlights, often highlights those who refreshed either him or other believers. 1 Corinthians 16, 17, I rejoiced at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. And then he adds the command, give recognition to such people. 2 Corinthians 7, 13, 
we rejoice still more at the coming of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Second uh, Timothy 1.16 May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. He writes to Philemon in verse 7 For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. And he looks forward to the end of Romans, or at the end of Romans 15, to saying the brothers and sisters in Rome, that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed by your company. There are things that are mentioned once in the Bible and whole books are written on them. And that is right and good if the Bible says something even once, it is important. But how often do we hear about the ministry of refreshment, which Paul talks about so often, when it is so easy, a kind word, an encouraging smile, uh, remembering something that, that someone has said that's been going on in their life during the past week. Uh, a small practical expression of love. People want to do big, spectacular things for God, but, but little quiet acts of kindness can do immeasurable good in a church. And so let's think of the Lord's days uh, more and more as days when we're called uh, to be refreshed ourselves, but also called to the ministry of refreshment to refresh others. That we would be those who cause our brothers and sisters in Christ to sing rather than sigh. Be a refresher. Continue to be a refresher. It is no small thing that you're doing when you are refreshing brothers and sisters in Christ. And so uh, the, the fact that God's kingdom will come means we, we don't need to panic, but we're still called to exert ourselves in living out the Christian life and serving in the church. Often God's people are hungry and weary and thirsty in this wilderness. And God himself is not uninterested in what we do with the hungry and weary and thirsty. And so to sum it all up, as we close tonight, things may look bleak now, they certainly looked bleak then, but God has a plan. And if you want to be on the right side of history, get behind God's true king and be an encourager, not a discourager to your fellow believers. To give the, the last word to, to Dale Ralph Davis, 2 Samuel 17 shows God's kingdom under attack, but also under protection. We see, don't we? We see God's kingdom under attack. But perhaps only on the last day will we see many of the little ways that God has been at work protecting his kingdom as well. Uh, Davis goes on, there is solace in that for the people of God. Our ultimate security does not rest on any immunity from personal disasters or any guarantee that our own nation will never fall, but only in the fact that the God of heaven has set up a kingdom and it shall stand forever. Amen. We sing in closing from Psalm 55. Psalm 55 verses 6 to 11, page 113, Psalm 55, page 113, 6 to 11. 
Part of this psalm is quoted in the New Testament. Later on when it talks about casting your, your cares upon the Lord, quoted in First Peter. But, but this part of the psalm could have been quoted as well. It speaks about a hitiful in verse 10. Uh, once a close friend uh, who now in verse 6 David has to pray against. But these words are also prophetic about Judas. Verse 10, a man, my peer, my friend, to me well known. We shared sweet fellowship and walked to God's house in the throng. You picture Judas walking with Jesus through the streets of Jerusalem to the temple. But then one dark night, leaving the upper room and walking away, walking to betray Perhaps we wonder if verse 11 is on Christian to sing. But it was a prayer that was fulfilled in Judas. And and yes, we pray for those who walk away. uh, Those who use what they learn about Christianity uh, to, to try and undermine it. We pray for their repentance. But parts of scripture like this remind them and remind us what their ultimate destiny will be if they do not For those who have walked away, it is God's patience with them that this prayer has not yet been answered. He is delaying an answer to it, to give them opportunities to repent. But if not, it tells us what their ultimate destiny will be. So Judas or Jesus, we must choose who we will follow. But whatever our choice, Jesus' kingdom will come and his will will be done. Psalm 55, 6 to 11. uh, The tune is 4, 1, 6, 3. We'll stand and sing.